And if you had the privilege of growing up in the 60s, you undoubtedly had the pleasure of watching the adventures of Rocky and Bullwinkle. For those of you who are not familiar with the program, uh, Rocky and Bullwinkle is a cartoon series that features two very flawed and unlikely heroes, a moose and a squirrel. After each episode of Rocky and Bullwinkle, the uh, narrator would invite his uh, viewing audience to be sure to tune in again next time for the next episode, and then he would announce the title of that episode. And the titles were always, uh, you always had two titles. For instance, uh, this one, Bullwinkle Goes to Press, or All the Moose That's Fit to Print. Uh, another title was Bullwinkle Bites Back, or Nothing But the Tooth. And then one more, uh, one of the best ones might be this one, uh, Below Zero Heroes, or I Only Have Ice for You. Uh, but I was wondering if the, if the producers of Rocky and Bullwinkle were to title today's episode as Samson and Friends, or Samson and Enemies, they might come up with this title, Who Took the Honey Out of the Honeymoon, or what not to wear. Well, keep those titles in mind as we make our way through today's adventure of Samson and Friends. The story that we are about to read is packed with action, romance, and treachery, as we are about to see. So uh, if you want to follow with me, uh, you can turn to page 214 in your pew Bible as uh, I read. Samson went down to Timnah, and he saw one of the daughters of the Philistines, and then he came up and told his father and mother, I saw one of the daughters of the Philistines at Timnah. Now get her for me as my wife. But his father and mother said to him, Is there not a woman among the daughters of your relatives or among our people that you must go and take a wife from the uncircumcised Philistines? But Samson said to his father, Get her for me, for she is right in my eyes. His father and mother did not know that it was from the Lord, for he was seeking an opportunity against the Philistines. Now at that time, the Philistines ruled over Israel. And then Samson went down with his father and mother to Timnah, and they came to the vineyards of Timnah. And behold, a young lion came roaring, and the Spirit of the Lord rushed upon him, and although he had nothing in his hand, he tore the lion in pieces as one tears a young goat. But he did not tell his father or his mother what he had done. And then he went down and talked with the woman, and she was right in Samson's eyes. After some days he returned to take her, and he turned aside to see the carcass of the lion. And behold, there was a swarm of bees in the body of the lion and honey. He scraped it out into his hands and went on, eating as he went. He came to his father and mother and gave some to them, and they ate. But he did not tell them that he had scraped the honey from the carcass of the lion. His father went down to the woman, and Samson prepared a feast there. For so the young men used to do. As soon as the people saw him, they brought thirty companions to be with him. And Samson said to him, 
Let me now put a riddle to you. If you can tell me what it is within the seven days of the feast and find it out, I will give you 30 linen garments and 30 changes of clothes. But if you cannot tell me what it is, then you shall give me 30 linen garments and 30 changes of clothes. And they said to him, put your riddle that we may hear it. And he said to them, out of the eater came something to eat. Out of the strong came something sweet. And in three days they could not solve the riddle. On the fourth day they said to Samson's wife, entice your husband to tell us what the riddle is, lest we burn you and your father's house with fire. Have you invited us here to impoverish us? And Samson's wife wept over him and said, You only hate me. You do not love me. You put a riddle to my people, not told me what it is. <laughs> and he said to her, Behold, I have not told my father or my mother. Why should I tell you? And she wept before him the seven days that their feast lasted. And on the seventh day, he told her because she pressed him hard. And then she told the riddle to her people. And the men of the city said to him on the seventh day before the sun went down, What is sweeter than honey? What is stronger than a lion? He said to them, If you would not plow with my heifer, you would not have found out my riddle. The Spirit of the Lord rushed upon him and went out and went down to Ashkelon and struck down 30 men of the town and took their spoil and gave the garments to those who had told the riddle. In hot anger, he went back to his father's house. And Samson's wife was given to his companion, who had been his best man. And that's a great story, don't you think? I mean, it's both dramatic and melodramatic. It's melodramatic in that it's, it's completely over the top and so excessively emotional and so extremely sensational. And yet it's dramatic because it's so intense and also especially because it's all true. So let's review just a few of these dramatic and melodramatic moments. We see Samson ripping a lion apart with his bare hands. And then as Samson passes by the place where he killed the lion, he finds honey inside the lion's carcass. And Samson was tempted. It was as though there were chocolate bars just sitting there. See, th this was a sugarless culture. They didn't have cane sugar or corn syrup. Uh, all they had was a little bit of honey every so often. And, uh, you know, it, it's hard for me to imagine a world without sugar. I can imagine a world without vegetables uh, pretty easily. Uh, but a world without uh, anything sweet. So I can understand why Samson would be tempted, even though it was forbidden for him to come into contact with the dead. He gives some to his parents. He doesn't tell them where he got it. So now they are ceremonially uh, defiled. You know, Samson seems to have no regard whatsoever for the law of God or for the, the covenant that uh, he is part of. But we go on and we see Samson going to Timnah for the wedding feast. He proposes this riddle to his rented friends. Uh, Samson didn't have any of his friends from his hometown, uh, but you had to have some companions there, somebody, I guess, to stand up with you at the ceremony. 
And uh, these people wouldn't do it for free, so they had to be paid. At my wedding, uh, we got married in Indianapolis, which was Carol's hometown, so you know, all of the friends that she had growing up were, were, were there and available to be part of the wedding, but you know, I grew up in North Carolina, which is about 650 miles away, so you know, my friends aren't going to be coming. So I thought I might have to rent one of Kara's friends, you know, uh, pay for the tuts and uh, travel expenses and so forth. But you know, fortunately, it didn't have to do that. But I can kind of resonate with this idea of rented friends at, at a wedding. Uh, nonetheless, here they are. Uh, they're sitting around. What are they going to do? Uh, game wasn't on TV. Perhaps they were watching What Not to Wear. But so naturally they got bored. And so Samson comes up with this uh, riddle, which by the way was something that they did a lot in those days. Uh, the host or maybe someone else would propose a riddle. And just to make it interesting, you would put a, a bet on that. Uh, and uh, that, that's what's happening here. And uh, then we see you know, Samson uh, referring to his wife as a heifer. Uh, if you would not plow with my heifer, you wouldn't have found out the riddle. Now, I don't really understand what that uh, phrase means. I, I checked with a, a lot of uh, sources, uh, Hebrew commentaries, uh, as, as well as English ones. And uh, basically, it's a euphemism that says, you cheated. <laughs> so that's really the best I can do for you. Um, well, anyway, the story goes on. The bride's melodramatic performance of tears gets to Samson. She carries on like this for seven days. You don't love me. You only hate me. <laughs> I mean, how much longer could someone stand that? It goes on day after day after day. <laughs> you don't love me. Isn't it interesting that Samson could take a lion? and rip it apart with his bare hands. He can do that. But a woman's tears, he's like butter on a warm August day. He just melts. Later on in chapter 15, to get even with the Philistines, Samson catches 300 foxes and ties their tails together and lights uh, a torch and they go all over and uh, destroy the wheat harvest. It, it's harvest time. Now, Every so often a fox comes into our yard. There's one fox just comes up to the door. I don't, and he does that several times, or she. I don't know how you tell the difference between boy fox and girl fox. But anyway, this fox comes up to, to the door and uh, then turns around and goes away. I guess it's because he can't reach the doorbell up, up there. But uh, I, I saw him sitting there by the side of the house and took his picture and posted it on Facebook. So you can see that if you're connected with me on Facebook. If you're not, just send me a friend request and I will reciprocate uh, immediately. But I can't imagine catching one fox, much less 300. How do you do that? And then later on, uh, after the foxes have done their thing, uh, it's after the uh, Philistines had uh, followed through with their threat and burned down the, the house of his uh, his wife to be and his uh, and and the father. So you know he wants to get even. So you know he takes the jawbone of, of a of a donkey, uh, jawbone of an ass, as it is uh, in the original language. And with that, you know he 
kills a thousand men. And uh, that's puzzling and also disturbing. But, you know, these are some of the big action points in the story. I mean, it, it really is filled with action and lots of drama. But besides just the drama and the melodrama, I mean, is, is, this, is this why the, the story is here just to entertain us? Uh, actually, the story has a lot of strange stuff in it, uh, like Samson referring to his bride-elect as a heifer. And then, you know, later on, the, the father of Samson's fiance, uh, when, you know, Samson comes back from, uh, you know, getting the 30 garments and, you know, he wants to go spend some time with his wife and the, uh, the bride's father says, well, uh, you know, you weren't here, so I gave my daughter to your best man. <laughs> so uh, here, here's my younger daughter. Take her. She's better looking anyway. I mean, think about this. Poor, poor woman that Samson was engaged to, you know, first he, she's referred to as a heifer uh, by her husband-to-be, and then her father says, uh, you know, her younger sister is better looking. Uh, that would be hard to deal with, wouldn't it? Now, something else we, we find uh, you know, difficult, in addition to being puzzling, is when uh, you know, Samson kills the 30 men from Ashkelon and takes their garments to pay a bet, maybe that reinforces my earlier uh, suggestion that maybe the guys have been sitting around watching what not to wear on TV. Um, nevertheless, these 30 Philistines whose garments uh, Samson took um, kind of fit in with, with the theme that they shouldn't have been wearing those garments because Samson wanted them and they had the guys who had them on had to pay a pretty heavy price, a very heavy price, uh, for Samson to, to get them. So, you know, that's a strange, weird thing in, in the story. And uh, we wonder if there's a meaning for us in, in there. But when we come to verse 19 in the story, uh, this is the most disturbing, uh, most difficult verse, I think, in this passage. The Spirit of the Lord rushed upon him. He went down to Ashkelon and struck down 30 men of the town, took their spoil, and gave the garments to those who had told the riddle. Now, why is this um, verse so disturbing to us? Later on in chapter 15, after um, we see the Spirit of the Lord again rushing upon Samson as a result, he took the jawbone of the donkey and he kills a thousand men. And uh, right away, doesn't that just get at you? How could the Spirit of God rush upon Samson to give him the strength to kill 30 men one time and then a 1,000 men another time? That just doesn't seem like God at all. The God that I know would never send his Spirit upon someone in order that he might have the power to kill many people all by himself. See, it's kind of messing, the story is messing with our conceived ideas about who God is. So, uh, you know, there's strange stuff here, and so strange that we wonder if it really could be true. It seems more like an allegory than a, a factual historical account. So, you know, which is it? Is it history or is it an allegory? 
actually, uh, the story of Samson is kind of a living allegory. It's, it's real history, and it's also an allegory. In its simplest form, an, an allegory is a story with two levels of meaning. You have the, the literal and the symbolic meaning. Uh, the story of Samson, though, is literally true, and the things reported here really happened. But in a sense, the story is also an allegory. Uh, in the story of, of Samson, we don't see Samson as the hero that we want to emulate. He is not a good example for us to follow. He is not a Christ-like figure. He does represent Israel quite well, though. And uh, more than just people of Israel, I think uh, we could identify with, with Samson as well uh, in the, the context of his relationship uh, with God. Uh, but let's use Israel and, and Samson, Samson being the representative of, of Israel. Um, Samson is uh, unfaithful and chases after uh, a woman who worships other gods, which, you know, Israel did that time and time again. And uh, Samson would find himself in trouble and cry out to God. Um, you know, one time he's thirsty and another time, you know, he, he's, a, he's almost demanding help. Uh, from from God. It seems that he never really prays until he is in a jam. Uh, doesn't this sound contemporary? And so uh, eventually we see uh, after crying out to God for help, you know, God sends a deliverer, uh, which he does time and time again uh, through Samson's life, uh, through uh, the life of the people of Israel in the time of the judges, and it's not just limited to this cycle. Uh, this is the cycle of the entire Bible, uh, that the people of God drift away from him, and then they find themselves in trouble, and so they cry out to him for help and for deliverance, and God does send the ultimate deliverer. He sends uh, the king of kings. Uh, you know, the, the book of Judges says there is no king in Israel and that day everyone did what was right in his own eyes, but the, eventually the, the, the true king does come. And this is all here in the book of Judges. It points to that. Well, the problem though about Samson is he never really learned his lesson. And... Um, so you know, he repeats the cycle of sin over and over again, just as Israel does, just as the people in the Bible do, and just as we do. This is the story of our lives, isn't it? All right, so how do we approach this story? Uh, should, we, uh, 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 should we focus on, on, on Samson and uh, just see what kind of lessons we can get from looking at his life? Uh, you know, maybe there are some um, you know, moral instruction, uh, instructions that we could get. Like, uh, you know, Samson's done a good example, but it does show us that we should commit ourselves to the Lord. And we also learn from Samson that we should honor our father and mother. And we should avoid temptation. And we should keep our eyes on the Lord so that we don't get into trouble. And we should do what is right 
not in our own eyes, but what is right in God's eyes. You know, all of these lessons make for good moral instruction. But is this what the message of Judges is in general and what the story of Samson is in particular? The problem is, if we focus just on that, just some moral instructions, then we're left with all of this strange stuff, all of the disturbing stuff. What, what do we do about that? Is there more to the message of this episode in Samson's life than just a handful of moral instructions? You know, as we've seen, Samson is hardly a role model. Um, but yet we see uh, so much stuff going on uh, that's hard for us to, to figure out, hard for us really to digest. Uh, for, for instance, in um, verses 1 through 4, well, I just want to look at verse 4 here. But in, in verses 1 through 4, where Samson falls in love with a Philistine woman, and um, she or he wants his parents to get her for him, because she's right in his eyes. And then in verse 4, uh, we see that his father and mother did not know that it was from the Lord, for he was seeking an opportunity against the Philistines. You know, that verse kind of rattles us a little bit. This doesn't seem like the loving God that we know, that he, he would ever try to stir up animosity between peoples when they were at peace with one another. So why would God do that? Well, in, in the next verse, uh, the, the the spirit of the Lord you know rushes upon uh, Samson, uh, enabling him to tear a lion apart with his uh, bare hands, and we wonder why God would would do that. Uh, you know, it's not that Samson was living in such a way that he would be eligible for God's power. You know, God just gives it to him. Then we get down to uh, verse 19, or there's the verse about the lion. We get down to uh, verse 19, uh, where we see the spirit of the Lord rushing upon him. And he went down to Ashkelon and struck down 30 men of the town and took their spoil and gave the garments to those who had told the riddle. At this time, red flags are waving. The alarms are going off. Uh, and we think, no, 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 this is not God. This is not the God that I know. It, it, it sure seems like the Bible's telling us some things about God that we are convinced cannot be true. You know, God doesn't go around seeking conflict, does he? Well, sure he does. <laughs> That's what we learned last week, and we're reviewing this week. Uh, God was seeking an opportunity against the Philistines to keep the Israelis from marrying into the Philistine nation. Uh, you know, within a generation or two, the nation of Israel would no longer be distinct. They uh, would have blended into the Philistine uh, culture and uh, to, to that people. And so um, there would no longer be a nation of Israel and there would no longer be a tribe of Judah through which the promised king would come. Now the predetermined plan, though, cannot be thwarted by anything man can do. 
God had determined that there would be a distinct nation of Israel and that his son, the king, would come through the line of Judah, even though it seemed that there was no way for the nation of Israel to survive as a distinct people. All right, so what do we learn about God? That's really what this chapter is about. I want to point out uh, just two things. First, Christ. Christ first. In other words, the Lord is the most important thing in life. You know, we learned this from the discussion about the uh, restriction that God had placed on his people you know, not to marry people from other nations, uh, those who were outside the covenant. And please do not interpret this as uh, some kind of a racist thing. Uh, you know, God does not want the people of Israel to marry the Philistines for reasons that have anything to do with race. The Bible does not forbid marriage between people of different races or ethnicities. Uh, for example, you know, there were plenty of Gentiles who married into the Israeli community. Uh, two notable examples come to mind. First of all, uh, Moses was married to a Cushite woman. Uh, Cush was an ancient name for Ethiopia. So uh, Moses married a black woman. And uh, Boaz married Ruth, uh, a Moabite woman, and was part of the line through which the, uh, the king would come. So why then were the people of Israel forbidden to marry the Philistines? Well, God didn't want his people to follow after the gods of the Philistines, to adopt the gods of other nations, which they were doing. All right, so what does this have to do with us? You know, we don't go around you know, worshiping idols and things like that. So, uh, I mean, isn't this something that's just reserved for the people of that day and, and that time? Uh, no, the principle is universal for all people at all time. So um, the, the command to the Israelis to not intermingle with pagan nations around them uh, applies to us in this way. A Christian should not marry someone who is not a Christian because if you do, you are join, joining yourself together with an unbeliever. 2 Corinthians 6.14 tells us that we should not be unequally yoked with unbelievers. And again, it's not because those who are not Christians are not lovable. Uh, they're sometimes more lovable than Christians are. <laughs> it's not because they aren't good enough or worthy of our love or that they have somehow inherently uh, become incapable of being a good marriage partner. It's simply because to be a Christian means that Jesus Christ is the most important thing in your life. And when a Christian and a non-Christian get together, you have two people who disagree about what is the most important thing in life. But what if you're already married to an unbeliever? Should you divorce your spouse? Oh, no. Not at all. 1 Corinthians 7 says, if you marry an unbeliever, you must do everything you can to stay in that marriage and be the best spouse you can be. 
You know, it's possible to fall in love with an unbeliever and marry that person and have a good marriage. Nevertheless, it is a great disadvantage to disagree on the most important thing in life. So you see the principle, uh, Christ is first in, in, in life. In the case of the Israelis and the Philistines, they disagreed on who or what was the most important thing in life. The Israelis had a covenant with the living God. The Philistines worshipped idols, you know, graven images that they had invented. You know, if Christ is not first in your life, uh, you will seek satisfaction from idols. And the idols of our culture are things like success, money, prestige, privilege, entertainment, sex, all the stuff we see in the story about Samson. But something that we learn from Scripture is that true satisfaction comes only through Christ. Christ is first. That's one thing that uh, one thing about God that we learn from the story. Uh, now let's talk about the other thing. And here it is: God can do whatever He wants through whomever He wants. In other words, God is sovereign. There, there are no restrictions on God. He has no boundaries. Now, we say we believe that, and yet when we read that, that God does something that disturbs us, we, we have trouble with that. We're not sure that he's coloring inside the lines. So let's consider what we see God doing in our story this morning. It's, it's clear that Samson is not a godly man. He's far from it. He pays no attention to the fact that he has been consecrated to God. He only seems to seek God when he is in trouble, uh, just like the nation of Israel and just like so many of us today. And keep that in mind as uh, we revisit what is likely the most troubling verse in the story. Uh, verse 19, we, we've read it previously, uh, the Spirit of the Lord, um, sorry, the Spirit of the Lord rushed upon him, and he went down to Ashkelon and struck down 30 men of the town and took their spoil and gave the garments to those who had told the riddle. In hot anger, he went back to his father's house. And in that chapter, chapter 15, is, is the part there where uh, to get rent, revenge against the Philistines, he finds a fresh jawbone of a donkey and uses it to, to kill a, a thousand men. And... Uh, these verses can be troubling to us. And, and why are they troubling? Because it rubs against the grain of our conditioned beliefs about how God works. You know, we like to think that God can only work through good people, through godly men and women. And by the way, shouldn't God also work only through people who have the right beliefs? And the right behavior? Now, we'd like to think so. But there, there's a problem with this kind of thinking. It puts God in a box. If God can only work through fine, upstanding, godly people, that would mean that God is only allowed to work when people are being good and making godly choices. It would mean that God does not work by grace you know, taking the initiative to save, but he works in response to good works, waiting for people to help him bring about salvation. 
In his commentary on Judges, David Jackman describes how the book of Judges shoots holes through all of that. So I want to paraphrase something he said in his commentary. The book of Judges is above all a book about grace and undeserved mercy, as is the whole Bible. This doesn't mean that theological accuracy is not important or that we pretend that it doesn't matter how we, be, how we behave. But we can rejoice that God is also in the business of using our failures as the foundations for his success. Let us never imagine that we have God figured out or that we know how he will work or when. As soon as we start to say, God cannot or will not do this until such and such happens, we discover that God can do whatever he wants through whomever he wants. He is not bound by, by our understanding of who we think he is. He is not bound by our theology. He is not bound by our sin. And that is good news for us. You know, the amazing truth about God is that he works through sinners and through sinful situations, just like he did with Samson. You know, not even our sin can stop God from saving us or using us. The story of Samson, the story of Judges, all the stories in the book of Judges, Indeed, the whole Bible is a story about grace and undeserved mercy. I want to close with this story. Do we have any hockey fans here? A few, some of you who live north of here. Then you might recognize uh, the name John Scott. The rest of us have no idea who he is. He's a professional hockey player. Uh, he is what sports people call a journeyman, which means he journeyed between a, a number of different teams because he was never really uh, a great player. He never got a long-term contract. He scored only 11 goals in 11 seasons, which is hardly remarkable. He's kind of a nobody in the NHL. But back in 2016, uh, the NHL opened up uh, a system of, of, of voting for uh, players to be on the, the all-star team. And so what happened was, was this. The, the, the fans voted for John Scott, uh, this nobody. You know, he was a popular player. He wasn't a great player, but he's very popular. And so they voted for him to go to the NHL all-star game. The NHL was embarrassed to have him featured in the all-star game. And they did everything they could to prevent him, but they had already said that, uh, you know, the ones who get the votes, votes are going to be on the team. And so John Scott got to be part of the all-star team, even though he didn't really deserve it. His accomplishments didn't really merit that kind of, of honor. So they play the all-star game in Nashville. And uh, this nobody... Uh, actually scored two goals, almost accidentally, almost unintentionally. 
So, you know, in his career, his 11-year career, he scores 11 goals, but in the All-Star game where he really shouldn't have been, he scores two goals. That All-Star game, John Scott was named most valuable player. And so he was called to the podium after the game was over, and the commissioner hands him a check for a million dollars, which was the prize for being the MVP, along with the keys to a new car, and he did nothing to deserve it. He takes a victory lap around the rink, his kids skating with him to share that moment of glory. Meanwhile, all the other players, both teams, taking their hockey sticks and rhythmically wrapping them on the ice as a way to show honor to this man while the crowd is shouting, MVP, MVP, MVP. It's an unthinkable moment of glory for an ordinary player who didn't deserve to even be in the game. Samson didn't deserve to be in the game. He didn't deserve to be used of God. And yet, here he is, mentioned in the Hall of Faith in Hebrews 11. The writer says, What more shall I say? For time would fail me to tell of Gideon, Barak. What's he doing there? What? All he did was follow Deborah, but there he is. Samson, Jephthah, David, and Samuel, and the prophets, who through faith conquered kingdoms, enforced justice, obtained promises, stopped the mouths of lions. That's a reference to Samson. Who quenched the power of fire, escaped the edge of the sword, were made strong out of weakness, became mighty in war, and put foreign armies to flight. Samson, Jephthah, Gideon, story after story after story. It's grace upon grace upon grace. That's the story that we've read, and it's your story too. All because of who God is and what he chooses to do in you and through you. You know, God can work through sinners just as effectively as he can the righteous. He can work through losers as well as he can work through winners. He can work through people who don't have all their ducks in a row just as easily as he can with those who do. God can take your mistakes, your sins, your bad choices, your poor judgment, along with all the unfortunate circumstances that you've had to deal with in life and cause all things to work together for good for those who are called according to his purpose. That's the kind of God we see in Judges. It's the kind of God we see working in Samson's life. It's the kind of God we see working throughout the Bible. 
And it's the kind of God we see working in and through us because that's the kind of God he is. Let us pray. Father, we recognize that you are a God that we cannot figure out. And we are grateful for that. If we could figure you out, then and we would be on the same level that you are. No one is able to, I mean, how, how can the finite comprehend the infinite? But you work through us, weak as we are, sinful as we are, powerless, weak as we are. You work through us. And the glory is all yours. And yet you choose to somehow let us be part of what you're doing in the world. Every one of us here has problems that we can't solve on our own. We know people who have problems that they can't solve without help. We ask, Lord, that the power of your Spirit would rush upon us as it did with Samson. Gratefully, we acknowledge that we do have your Spirit within us already. But we pray for a renewing, a, a spiritual uh, renewal of refreshment uh, that might come through us to nourish those parched and empty souls of those who are wandering without direction with problems they cannot solve and are hungry for you even though they probably don't know it. Work through us to reach those who yearn for you, though they may not be aware. We ask it through Christ our Lord. Amen.